What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Up Before You podcast with me, Connor Warman. I want to take a moment to thank you all for taking the time out of your busy lives to listen to this show. Whether it's your first time or your 64th time listening, thank you for tuning in. If you like the show, please share with family and friends. And, as always, if you don't like the show, please share with me. If you have a moment, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating, write a little review, and hit that subscribe button. Lastly, go follow Up Before You on Instagram and Facebook and visit upbeforeyou.com to keep up with all the latest episodes, news, and updates surrounding the show. My guest today is Guy Courtney. Guy is a former collegiate gymnast at Illinois State University. After that, Guy spent 25-plus years in investment banking, where he testified before Congress and served as chairman of Chicago's Shareholders Association, to name a few things. He ran a dog sledding business in Aspen, Colorado for a few years, and that is where he found CrossFit. Guy is also a pilot. The man wears many hats and pretty much does it all. Now, Guy is on a mission to save the oceans and, more specifically, our coral reef environment. His project is called Mission Ocean Reef, and it's all about bringing back our coral reefs and saving the ocean. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. going on guy everything's going on. everything's going on <laughs> yeah, this that and the other thing yeah. yeah relaxing day but not necessarily a relaxing day something's always happening yeah i've been looking forward to this for a long time me too me too so, it's good to be with you're you. like the mystery man at the gym that's nobody not knows. true no, <laughs> nobody no, no. knows anything about you <laughs> who have you talked to about everyone me? and they say they say i don't know who this guy is he's just a guy named guy well when you think about the box do you really know anything about anybody outside of the box? I guess you're right. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, that could be true of anybody. Yeah, that's true. You make me sound like I'm mysterious on purpose, yeah. but it's not the case. Yeah. All right, so we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, So we got to sure. start right away. Yeah, dig in. Start with the childhood. Yeah. Tell me about yourself growing up. Myself growing up, great childhood. Grew up in Mount Prospect here in the suburbs of Chicago. Great time, easy life, you know, the middle type of community, mom and dad, older sister. Older sister who I don't talk to today, who lives in London. That's another story. (laughs) We'll get into that (laughs) next year sometime. Um, Yeah, growing up was good. Yeah, I had a very easy childhood. It was the country club community. My dad was successful as a a food broker and um, got involved in that business for a little bit as I grew up and went to the office with him, things Mm -hmm. like that. We had a bunch of animals in the house. Um, We've shared some of that a little bit. My mom used to work as a volunteer at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. So animals were very second nature to me. I mean everything from canaries in a cage to chinchillas to rabbits to hamsters to guinea pigs to cats and dogs. And then there was the one special (laughs) pet. And I don't know why we had this one special pet. But this one special pet was a full-grown female adult cheetah. You heard me right, a cheetah, whose name was Tarzana. And I'm taking you way back. I'm taking you back to me in grade school. And Tarzana was a um, show-and-tell project for me. I mean, picture trying to do that today. Picture... Wait, a show-and-tell project? Yeah, as in 
I'm taking Tarzana into school. <laughs> on a leash? On a leash. Full-grown female adult cheetah. This is not... This is my dog, Sam. This is my cheetah, Tarzana. Uh-huh. I was a big... Big deal. It was cool. You can't do things like that today. Yeah, you no. can't even have a plastic knife today. Yeah. yeah. Now you have to go through like airport security getting into schools. Do you Some really? Of them. Yeah. Oh, geez. No, thank you. It's crazy. What's going on, man? I don't know. <laughs> crazy stuff. Exactly. It sure <laughs> crazy is. Crazy stuff. <laughs> Out of control. So when you brought it into school, like, did people walk up and just pet it? Or oh, yeah. Like, I mean, they'd like, say, oh, wow, cool. Like, Can I tell you? Yeah. No, no. Really? Nobody was afraid of it. It was just as normal as anything else that you might... Come across. You know, somebody brings in a pet rabbit. That gets the same reaction as the cheetah on a leash. It's like, oh wow, that's cool. What's their name? And why do you have a cheetah? That's a cheetah, right? Yeah, that's a cheetah. And my mom drives up with me in a convertible, and I've got Tarzan in the back seat. So I know, weird, right? But fun. It wasn't weird for me. I mean, our family was like that. We just had. Literally, almost sort of name an animal other than the reptile group or the spiders or things like that. If they were warm and fuzzy and we had an affinity for them. Uh-huh. So how long did you have the cheetah for? About, about a month. Oh, that's it? Yeah, that was it. And I don't know why. I don't know why we had it. Uh-huh. Uh, it had something to do with my mom working as a volunteer at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And uh, she worked in the nursery there. And other than that, I have virtually, <laughs> not virtually, I have no idea of why we had Tarzana is a pet in her house. Yeah, I feel like now you really... I don't think you could do that. It'd have to be some law against yeah, There's got to be a law. There's a law against everything. There's a law against everything. <laughs> so, there's got to be a law against having um, a potentially undomesticated wild animal living in your house. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool, though. You're like uh, Mike Tyson with his tigers. <laughs> yeah. Racist tigers. Did you just compare me to Mike Tyson? Yeah. I don't know if that's good, man. <laughs> you need to back away from that real fast. All right, so what sports did you play growing up? Let's see. I was in midget football. What? what, what? Midget football? Wait, what? Actually, yeah, what's midget football? Like actual midgets? Yeah, well, football? yeah, yeah, midgets. No, just little kids. Oh, they called oh, midget oh, football okay. back then. Oh, okay. Not like peewee or... No, but it was like a peewee. Kind yeah, of okay. And I enjoyed that, but I didn't enjoy it so much. I got to maybe three quarters of the season and... And I decided to quit the team. I said, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to a Saturday practice. I don't want to show up on Sunday for a game, that kind of stuff. And my dad said, well, that's cool, but there'll be repercussions for that. So that I can deal with the repercussions, no problem. Except then I wanted to play baseball in a little league in Mount Prospect. And my dad said, well, here's the repercussion. You quit what you did in football, so... You're not going this year into Little League. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that was like getting my legs cut out from under me. What? I can't, I can't what? I mean, your friends are going, everybody's yeah. gone, and then I, here I am on the, in the bleachers watching people. That was a very impactful time. Really? Yeah. I mean, here I am, an older, wiser man, and I still remember that with yeah. an acuity that is very distinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why wouldn't he let you play? Because I had quit the midget football. I feel like he would want you to play, though. No, he just he didn't want do. me to quit. So, no, you quit. You don't you oh, don't go okay. forward doing something else. So huh. It was a lesson of some kind. Yeah. I'm not sure what it was, but it was so good. How would you get into gymnastics? I uh, started in high school. Went oh, to, not till high school. Yeah, not till high school. They didn't really have it in my day and age back before that. There wasn't all these programs that they have mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, so started in high school at Prospect High School, and... Uh, and glad I did that. Really enjoyed that. I've never been a team sport kind of guy. 
it's always been individual, um, you know, like tennis, wrestling, gymnastics. Um, but gymnastics is, yeah, I had an aptitude for that, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And that's what got me into school at Illinois State, and I'm thankful because my grades didn't cut it. <laughs> <laughs> so so do you, like, laugh at all the stuff we do at the gym, like muscle-ups and these things like that are just easy in gymnastics? No, just the opposite. Really? Yeah, because... Look, I'm, I don't know if you know this or not, but I was taking up my own personal internal survey of the ages of people at the box. Yeah. And I'm the oldest person there. You are? Yeah, that's what I've been told, and that's what I'm led to believe. If I'm not the oldest, I'm near the oldest. So having a couple of things that I can do and do well is a really nice thing. It's a comfort zone for me. So some of those moves, and you just don't, it's like riding a bike. You don't forget how to do it. You just, you just do it. You just don't do as many. <laughs> you so do you can do muscle-ups and stuff? Yeah. Like yeah. on the rings? Um, I can do muscle-ups on the rings, yeah, if I get a good swing. That's cool. Yeah, not a static muscle-up, but a swinging muscle-up. You're probably one of the only people at your age that can do that. It's probably not a lot out there. I don't know. There's some, there's some pretty good athletes at, at my age. Yeah. yeah? And that age, by the way, is 65, so... Yeah, I'm cranking, man. Yeah, no, I, I bet. Yeah, you're probably one of the better 65 year old CrossFitters out there. You're you're kind to to say that. It's just good. It's a great community yeah, yeah. and a great place to get your blood going. And you know, there's days, and I don't know if you run into this, but there's days where I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, geez, not today. But if I take that day off, I know that could lead to two days off. Yeah, and that could lead to three days off. So no, thank you. Not going to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Yeah, so we're getting a little out of order here, but how did you get to the gym? How did you find the gym? When I um, I lived in Aspen, Colorado for a okay. while, and that's where I discovered CrossFit. Where'd you go out there? At, um, oh gosh, I have to think of the name of it right now. But they were in Basalt, um, Colorado, Roaring Fork CrossFit. Thank okay. you. Um, and it was right next to a storage area where I stored stuff, and I periodically went to the storage area, and I saw this. And I didn't know CrossFit. I didn't see it in any advertisement or publication or anything like that and it took two years and i drive by back and forth and i'd see people outside and people running down the street and the doors are open in an industrial area and i thought i'm going to stop in there and i went in and the fellow who owns it vince shimp at um, that box said yeah come on in let's give this a go i said oh yeah sure and you go through a little orientation thing and yeah. indoctrination and then you get into a class, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm dying. And you're dying so badly. At the end, you're thinking, I can't wait to come back till tomorrow. You know? Yeah. And one day leads to another day, another day, and pretty soon you're getting there. And you know the program, mm-hmm. being a guy who goes to the box. You just you want a little more, mm-hmm. and, it, and it entices <clears throat> you, and it, it grabs hold of you. There's, there's a real, it's not even suspicious, it's blatant in terms of its uh, efficacy in getting, it, getting the job done. If you want to be fit... You want to take care of yourself, you know, show up at CrossFit, and it'll happen for sure. What was it like training up there in the altitude? Oh, big difference. Big difference. No yeah. Noticeable. Yeah, we're like 8,000 feet, yeah. um, you know, in that Aspen area in the mountains. Um, the difference, and we're at 800 feet, you know, here in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you come back here from being out there, and mm-hmm. you're a superstar because you can go forever. Yeah. Um, in a manner of speaking. But, you know, in 10 days, it goes away. It starts... Yeah, losing its effectiveness. If I went out there now, I'd be, you know, sucking wind for weeks before I got 
normalized. Yeah, so what happens? Do you like get out of breath faster? Or do you like, get lightheaded? Or oh, absolutely, get yeah. out of breath faster. I mean, your heart rate accelerates so quickly. I mean, you go from um, you know your whatever your resting pulse might be to an accelerated rate in a matter of moments, um, a matter of seconds, for that matter. I mean, you're you just your body can't get enough oxygenated blood flow mm-hmm. to it to make it to make it work and. And that's a big deal yeah. <laughs> if you want to live. <clears throat> so I'm kind of surprised. I like, got more like top level competitors don't go out and train out there. Yeah. So when they come to Madison for the games, they do well to train yeah, out there. I, I wonder. I mean, you've probably heard of you know other athletes who train out there. The bikers go out there and ride the mountains, yeah. mm-hmm. and they ride the mountains for for the hills and the challenge of the mountains. But it's as much for the altitude as well. Because you get you know more red blood cells. More red blood cells transports more oxygen. More oxygen means you go longer and you go stronger. So going back to Illinois State now. Yeah. Or actually, no, no, not going back to Illinois State. So you found CrossFit out there. How did you find CrossFit Barrington? Well, once you've had CrossFit, it's sort of hard to just drop kick it out the door. So I was looking uh-huh. for something, and I went to a number of different boxes around here. Oh, really? Yeah, Lake Zurich to be specific. Um, there's a couple of boxes. Lake Us? Lo- Lake Us? I don't know. It yeah, it sounds like it. Okay. But I don't remember. It's been some time now. And I kept coming back <laughs> here because it was closer to where I'm living. Yeah. And, um, and it was easy, and I like the group of people, and it's a good community. It's a really solid group of guys mm-hmm. and gals. So, is it a lot different than what you had out in Colorado? In different only in terms of size. Okay. Um, out there, it was much smaller, yeah. but you still had the same um, values and the same ingredients of community. Um, it was good that way, but not nearly as many people. That's what's so cool about it is I feel like you can go just about anywhere and you just get a strong community. Yeah, if you travel, yeah. you've probably dropped in on some other boxes, oh, yeah, yeah. as I have, and it's always welcoming, mm-hmm. and all you have to do is say, yeah, I go to a box here, and they're like, okay, cool, and yeah. and there you go. It's really cool. And it's all, t- it's it's really cool. I mean, that doesn't, where does that happen today? I mean, you don't see that. You know, even in business, if you work for some large Fortune 500 company, you travel to a branch office somewhere, and it's you know everybody is foreign to you and different, and different culture, different environment. You go to CrossFit, it's the same. You're doing the same things the same way, and there's value in that community for yeah, sure. No, for sure, for yeah. sure. All right, so back to Illinois State. So you got in as a gymnast. I got it. That's the only reason I was able to go there. If I didn't have gymnastics, I was sucking dirty canal water. <laughs> so what? Like what? Are there different events in gymnastics? Like, what did you compete in? Sure. I was in the all-around competition. So just everything? Yeah, you that's just everything. just ran from thing to thing and yeah. just did it? That's what you do is an all-around gymnast, that's, which is generally the Olympic protocol. Yeah. You know, it's all-around competition. Um, they have special, they call them specialists if you just did floor exercise or pommel horse or parallel bars or vaulting or high bar rings, whatever. Okay. Um, so it was, yeah, it was good. It's good, and and as in any event, when you're doing that many events, one you're tired and you're sore. Yeah. The other thing is that you know you have things that you gravitate to, and that you do well at, um, and other things that are like, oh, geez, do I have to do this right now? And you know, you have to, and you're going to do it. So, mm-hmm. but it was fun. It was it's a good sport, and it carries with me even through today. And that was a long time ago. In mm-hmm. the ability to do things at the box and um, flexibility is a big. D- big deal mm-hmm. for me that um, I maintain some degree of flexibility as much if not more so than others at the box and I mean that humbly not in any way conceitedly yeah. but it's but I know it's an injury preventer without question 
you had to be a little tall for a gymnast, right? Yeah, I was tall for a gymnast. Aren't they usually little guys? Today they're much smaller. They're built like fire hydrants, <laughs> and you can and you can really get after it. I mean, there's, yeah. and they do tricks today. That there's different equipment today. There's different uh, the, the floor exercise used to be just a pad, as in like a wrestling mat, on the floor, and that was fine. You didn't know any better. You know, today it's suspended off the floor with a spring structure underneath it, and that's why they can do so many things. You get on that, and it's like, you know, being on a miniature trampoline. So so abilities have changed. The difficult levels have changed because of some equipment changes primarily. You take any real bad falls in competitions? No, no, no never, never did. No, I never had any. Every, everything was fine, never had any issue. You're making me think of some friends who got hurt yeah. and... Um, yeah, it, it can happen, but I never had that issue at all. Yeah, I just feel like in something like that, like a big fall could kind of, even if it doesn't really hurt you, it could kind of scare you and you're just never the same. Yeah. It did like I had a friend of mine from um, Hersey High School in the area who went to Southern who was killed in gymnastics. Really? And it broke his neck in the floor exercise. And Jeez. he was uh, a superstar, mm-hmm. an absolute superstar. And it was stunning because you never heard about injuries like that occurring you never heard about that cataclysmic kind of event mm-hmm. yeah wow so. that's pretty crazy yeah it is crazy so going into school what did you want to study oh i wanted to be a marine biologist okay it's all i ever wanted to do from high school forward and uh so i was a biology major for uh, a couple of years until a point in time where my dad kindly patiently <laughs> took me aside as only dads can do and i love my dad <laughs> completely um, respected him entirely and said you know that's really cool that's great that you want to go to San Diego and after your second or third year in school at Illinois but do me a favor guy get your business degree and have something to fall back Mm -hmm. on I'm just a college kid Mm -hmm. okay fine let's do that and so I transferred to the business school and got my degree in business administration is that your real name Guy? Yeah. Yes. Is it short for something? Uh, no. no. It's just it, Guy. Yeah, it was my um, grandmother's maiden name. Her name okay. was Alice Guy. My dad was Guy. My son is Guy. So there's three guys in the... Three guys. Three guys in the... <laughs> it's such an interesting name. Yeah, I don't what, know. So what are we going to name him? Let's name him Guy. Guy. Okay. Yeah, he's just that guy. <laughs> so this is normal as all get out for me, but you know, for other people, I imagine yeah. it's can be fairly peculiar so what exactly do marine biologists do see i'm just picturing a guy in scuba gear just diving down and that's what i wanted to do and that's what i wanted to really? do yeah i wanted to learn about ocean life wanted to learn about the complexities of that ecosystem um it just fascinating to me beautiful this is in the day of um, um big television series on at the time was the undersea world of jacques cousteau Maybe you, everybody out there knows jacques cousteau probably in the name for some reason or another um very well known and it just fascinated me. And he showed videos of some incredible ecostructures around the world. And I was, I'm all in with that. I was like, I want to see that. I want to do that. I learned to dive, got closer to it. You taste it a little bit. That just feeds the momentum of ambition to get after that. Um, and you learn and you read and then my dad says, well, get your business degree first. Mm-hmm. And then 25 years later, I finally got out of the world of business and said, okay, fine. That's where I'm headed. So that's so interesting because it seems like you, you didn't really want to do the business thing. 
but then you will out of school. Yeah, but I did like, it anyway. And yeah. you're like a you're like yeah. a star in business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it all worked out. So how did that happen? It happened pretty um, organically. I was <laughs> okay. This is getting too deep, but we're going to go there anyway. <laughs> right. So I'm I'm at school on a gymnastics scholarship. The expense structure is pretty cool, and it's and it's done. But I get a job, a part-time job, as one of the first male telephone operators at General Telephone in Bloomington, Illinois. Okay. Across the street from the employee entrance for General Telephone is a stockbroker's firm, Stiefel Nicholas and Company. They're based in St. Louis. And I'd walk by it, and I'd see a ticker tape in the window. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, what the heck is this all about? And I'd look at it, and there'd be all these symbols, and okay, let's learn about that somewhere someday. So on a day off, I walk into that office, and I meet who later has become my very best friend of 35, 36 years, mm-hmm. Jim Crow, and he became my broker. Now, my broker, I'm a kid, this is a long time ago, with a few hundred bucks, and this is before cell phones, this is before PCs, Mm -hmm. this is a long time ago. (laughs) This is when a big day in stocks might be five points. This is when the Dow is at 860. (laughs) That's 860, Uh no commas. So different environment completely, but it was an incredible environment. So I grew up in that business then um, after graduation, he said, you know, you would really enjoy this business. And he and I teamed up, and he taught me a lot, as in virtually everything that was uh, substantial about this business. He was a, a Rhodes Scholar, spoke three different languages, served um, in Japan for a number of different companies. Um, really smart cat. And is just retiring from the business this year, as a matter of fact. Wow. Yeah, very good stuff. So, yeah, so it said, like, you told me, like, you've testified before Congress, you've done... Tons of interviews with major media networks. You've yeah. authored papers on financial issues and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. How that? When did that all happen? It all is. That's all organic stuff. It just okay. it happens. One thing leads to another. I was, um, you know, the first round of interviews that I went through with the Wall Street Journal. Um, I, this is this is how it works. Here's the simplicity of it. So you read something in the Wall Street Journal. And you see somebody quoted in the Wall Street Journal. And I remember my dad saying one day, hey, look, here is Judge so-and-so, a friend of his, who's quoted in the Wall Street Journal. And he was impressed by that. So I'm thinking, oh, I need to be quoted in the Wall Street Journal, apparently. <laughs> you know how those little nuggets of information get launched into your brain? And they some of them germinate and some fall by the wayside. Yeah, okay. And this one germinated. And so one day, I've been in the business a number of years, I guess. I said, well, this is nuts. They're always looking. A reporter must be looking for other sources of information. And I wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal, to a couple of reporters there um, specifically. And basically, it was a really um, smart aleck letter. It was <laughs> as in, you know, oh, you know, it's nice hearing from Fred and Joe and Jimmy and Don. You might want to expand your repertoire uh-huh. and consider somebody like me. Yeah. And I got a call. And it was sort of the, okay, smart Alec. Yeah, what do you got to say? say? (laughs) What's the market doing? And in that business, the business of the financial press, one thing leads to another. If you're quoted somewhere, somebody else will pick that up. And if it's Business Week or if it's um, Forbes or the Seattle Post-Intelligence or and all of a sudden you're getting a bunch of phone calls. So no press agent, nobody's out there fanning the flames of this fire. It 
just happened and that's how it happens organically as opposed to you know some controlled burn so it's all good so then how did you get to testify before congress did well that was that? that was a um a, Related to financial business, but I became acquainted with a financier at the time, T. Boone Pickens. Okay. T. Boone Pickens was the primary owner of That's a... That's a cool name. Of a, yeah, yeah. Cool name. Cool guy, too. Yeah. I think it was T. Boone Pickens III, as a matter of okay, fact. Okay, even yeah. better. And that's a Texas name, as you might imagine. Yeah. And uh, down in Amarillo. And he had a company called Mesa Petroleum. It was a public company. And they launched Mesa Petroleum, the takeover merger acquisition craze in the markets. And I don't remember the year, but they tried to take over Gulf Oil. Gulf Oil, huge, probably 20, 30 times the size of Mesa Petroleum. But he had all the financing together and was in the picture. And I thought, well, if a letter to the Wall Street Journal to get quoted, got me going, I'll send a letter to Boone Pickens. Mm. And we started this relationship, uh, very casual, of I got a letter back, which is really exciting. I mean, this is a you know name brand kind of guy. And he started a, an organization called the United Shareholders Association and asked me to chair the Chicago chapter of that. Fairly big organization, 25,000 members in mm. Chicagoland. And um, it didn't require a lot of work. It was more travel and going to meetings. And that led to congressional testimony. And that was my first foray into the halls of Congress. So what did you testify about? Oh, about the rules and regulations that after a large deal, um, uh, Colbert, Kravis, and Roberts, KKR known at the time, they're still in business, was trying to take over... um, um, RJR Nabisco. Yeah, so we talked all about that in one of my classes. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah. that whole thing. Was it was, and that was also sort of the beginning areas of merger and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and it was huge. Yes, and that's what was the lever that really launched Congress into. Oh, we need to take a look at what's going on in this and all of that. And that's where I then was part of that process with the United Shareholders Association. And Boone asked me then to. Can you go to Congress and testify? And so I testified with, um, at the time, Treasury Secretary Nick Brady. Um, and that's a, and then there's a whole new story, yeah. you know, in terms of being absolutely fed up with to the nth degree of Congress and the people that run Congress and the Congress critters themselves, I mean Congress people, Congress critters sometimes is a better description. Um, I have some very um, disparaging remarks about the <laughs> political process. And and that just, you know, when you get close to it, you think you're going to have an impact and you're going to do something, and there's no impact. There's It's as if there's, um, you know, the wizard behind the curtain is pulling all the switches. Yeah. And um, it's probably more that I was just too ignorant to understand the process and didn't have patience for it. But So you kind of feel like you go in there and no matter what you say, their mind's already made up or mm-hmm. you can't, you don't really have... No, I think that's accurate, for me anyway. Um, just the formality or they just have to do it? Kind of like have to yeah, listen I think, to you? I think you have a little... Um, yeah, hearings are a necessary process <clears throat> mm-hmm. in the legislative process. But you have to have a certain amount of patience and I just don't have that mindset. I don't have that makeup. You know, I've been never worked for a big company. I've always been on my own, doing my own thing. The, excuse me, the entrepreneurial yeah. side of things. And, um, you know, in the world of being an entrepreneur, 
the regulatory process is mostly you end up asking questions why why do you have to fill out this form why do i have to do this i have to pay a fee to do what mm. for what do i get for that i don't get anything you get a fee and that's all there is to it and that's very um it's drastically annoying to me so i just have a tendency to uh, gravitate away from environments like that but i didn't understand it until i was in washington and spent a lot of time in the congressional offices of people and listening to this that and the other thing as staffers and congress people and it's it's like this is going nowhere mm. so i'm going back home and getting back to work yeah yeah huh so then you were telling me before this you worked with George Bush, George W. Bush? Yes, yeah. George W. had a um, an oil and gas company, Spectrum yep. 7, when he lived in Midland, Texas. This is before he was uh, uh, governor of Texas. This is before any political ambitions took hold. Um, his, his dad was vice president at the time under Gerald Ford, and um, we placed a lot of business for him. And uh, moderately successful, not overwhelmingly successful, but it worked out. But that's how we got to know one another as well. So you know him? Yeah, I know him. But after after the political thing takes root, he was part of his dad's uh, campaign when he was vice president. Um, visited with him in Washington. Then he's he is a gracious guy, kind guy, um, generous guy. Um, I don't see. Yeah, I never had any experience other than very positive experience with him. But nothing intimate and in-depth and things like that. And then he got on the political bandwagon, and that's when we lost touch with each other. So if you, t- if you called him today, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know who you are? Well, if I could get his phone number, he'd know who I am. But I don't, hey, how oh, do you really? contact the ex-president? I'm so not he, sure. Yeah, so he would know who you were, though. I think, you know, I, I hope so. I don't yeah. think that's my ego talking. I think that's legitimate. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, who knows? Yeah, yeah. We'll have to try that. Yeah. We should do that online. We should <laughs> pick up the phone and track him down. Yeah. <laughs> See what happens. I bet you could. Nah, I don't know. It'd be hard. I think it would be hard. Yeah. I, I mean, think of the layers of people you'd have to go through to. Yeah. Who are you? Why does he want to spend time with you? Think of the demands on his time and mm-hmm. Laura's time and different world. Because they, they get protection for life, don't they? They do. Yeah. How, how much do they get? Like, just is it like just a guy that follows them around? or They get more than a guy. They get, um, you know, chauffeur-driven stuff. and But I don't know how many people in the Secret so, Service are with them. So if you got elected president and you were in office for a week and then got impeached, would you still get Secret Service for I life? I don't know. That's a question for the U.S. Secret Service. <laughs> but I'm guessing you probably would. Yeah. yeah. And you'd probably get a really nice retirement package to boot. Yeah, right. So, all right, so now you're on a mission. You're retired. I am. And you got this, it's called Mission Ocean Relief. Yeah. Right? Mission Ocean Reef. Reef. Reef, as in coral reef. So can you tell me about that? Sure. Um... So finally, how do we get to this point? Well, picture coming full circle in your life. Remember back in college, what did I want to do? I want to become a marine biologist. So that's always been a a flame to get after and was invigorating to me to think about those things. That gets deflected and I enter the investment banking business. That's 25 years, which was fine. That's raising a family and four kids and the whole nine yards, and that's no disappointments or anything. But you reach a point of, gosh, what do you do now? How do you go about it? Um, And this was born when I lived out in Aspen, Colorado, of all places. Middle of the Rocky Mountains, I go to what they do well in Aspen is bring in all sorts of guest speakers on everything. You can go listen to a, a physicist in the morning, 
um, see an incredible concert that evening, and then the next day you can talk to um, an oceanographer. Joni Klapis is her name, Dr. Joni Klapis, who is with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in uh, Fort Collins. And she came out and gave a presentation about the coral reef environment, and that's her thing. And I thought, here is a combination of my loves. One of my loves is sailing, and I learned here in Chicago on Lake Michigan a long, long time ago. And combining my love of sailing with the ocean environment, and she gives this incredibly poignant, impactful talk about the coral reef system today. And I couldn't imagine that. Nobody nobody could. I mean, everybody, you take a vacation, you go to a beach, let's say, mm-hmm. and you look out at the water, what do, you, what do you know what's under the water? You know, unless you're diving, unless you're involved in it and literally dive into it, you know, you don't see what's going on. You hear about the periodic thing, ocean temperatures are up, and, and you hear they're up um, um, one degree. You and I sitting here, if the temperature changes outside by one degree, it doesn't have a lot of impact on us. In the ocean, it's devastating. It's absolutely off the charts. And they've recorded this information for decades now. And it is very clear that ocean temperatures consistently reach above normal temperatures. And that's killing coral reef environment. Why do we care? That's the question. Okay, things happen in nature. Things happen. The forest system fails. Water supplies change. Whatever it happens to be. And that's part of the natural course of events. But the ocean reef system is the place where, depending on who you read, 50% is a minimum, 70% perhaps is of a max, as a maximum of the ocean community of animal life depend on coral reef environment. They either live at the reef environment or they depend on it at some time in their life cycle, generally for food, sustenance, protection, whatever. Um, Today, the um, Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which is roughly 1,600 miles long, it's huge. It's it's huge. And you've heard about it, and you probably think of it in terms of um, it's beautiful and it's gorgeous and all that. It's 50% gone. Jeez. Gone. Devastated. Dead. As in, go out to your garden, and everything you planted months ago is mysteriously dead. And it's become a real focal point for discussion with the scientific community, um, with the general public. And that's what Mission Ocean Reef is all about. Let's combine the the beauty of the yachting experience, which, shoot, winter's in Chicago. Where do you want to go? Let's go to the Bahamas, for crying out loud. And wouldn't it be nice to not be on a beach? Let's get on a boat and enjoy all those things. But wouldn't it be cool to have the option, and it does not exist today, of going and enjoying the boat life, the yachting life, in all of its luxury, all the cool stuff that you can do, island to island hopping, but also be involved with replanting reef material and having an impact, an ecologically favorable impact on reefs all over the world. And um, that's what this is about. And there's a lot of different themes to that. There's a lot of different touch points for that to happen effectively. It's um, potentially big. What's really cool today is the communication with people who are out there on boats. Um, And there's a lot of people who sail around the world. That's not back in the day of Joshua Slocum. No, I've never sailed around the world, but oh, I do. Yeah, I sure do. That'd be cool. It'd be very cool. 
people are doing it, go to YouTube and yeah. hit sailing, and you'll come <clears> up with some um, some incredible video productions week by week yeah. of this, and that's how they support themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and all over the map, all over in terms of the the quality of the video, the um, vessel that they are sailing, uh, the people, um, what they're doing, the size of the boats. It can be you know the uh, penny and dime kind of operation. And there's very successful people who have done this very well that are supported through Patreon. And it's it's a big deal. Yeah. And they all, somewhere in some of those videos, most all of them, I would say, talk about, well, we were just here, and it was really sad because why? The coral reef environment is gone. The coral reef environment is gone. There's no animal life. And it's, it's you know, it's like walking across the Sahara Desert. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, in the water is the difference. So that's the motivation, and that's what catalyzed yeah. what I'm doing. So I want to ask you a question. So in, speaking of, like, the oceans and kind of global warming, yeah. is there any going back, or is it all damage control at this point? It's not going back that you need to do. It's going forward. Because global warming is something that's here, and I don't know how that changes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that changes through the industrial gases that are released into the atmosphere, as an example. I don't know how that changes by how do you reduce the population of the world by 2 billion people to reverse it somehow. Um, But as we have done as human beings, and by God's grace, we adapt, and we do it really, really well. But it's easier if you adapt sooner, as opposed to, okay, we're on the last gasp for air, if you will. Um, That's a tough one. You've got to be willing to adapt and adapt quickly. And there's, there's already a big movement on with mm-hmm. the coral reef environment. There's an incredibly poignant, special, educational movie out that Netflix carries now called Chasing Coral. And allow me to mm-hmm. recommend to anybody who hears this, please watch the movie Chasing Coral. It's National Geographic in terms of its, um, its scope and its substance, um, produced and directed by a friend's mind of all places in Fort Collins. Um, Colorado, and it's significant, and it will give you a very clear picture, and you'll be stunned at what's going on. It's it's one of those you look at it and say, "Really, that's a tearjerker. We're we're killing the planet doing mm-hmm. this." And then you hear about everybody's read about the the five gyros, the areas of the oceans that are garbage patches, the, yeah. the Pacific gyro, which is the size of Texas, which is a Big honking state. It's as, the garbage patch is big. It's as that big, and it's not just. So how surface. do you do? How do you fix something like that? You have to reclaim all the trash and how recycle it. People are trying to figure it out now. Like are we swimming out there. Nobody, like... <laughs> nobody knows how to do it. I mean, people are collecting it. People have tried things recently. About three weeks ago, they brought a, a big contraption. I don't even know exactly like what. Some it, sort of vacuum kind of thing. You're talking about. It was more of a, a processing. It collected the garbage, and then a barge would take it away. The problem is, though, that the the plastics start to disintegrate, but they have a lifespan of like twenty thousand years. Yeah. You know, and it then there's underneath the primary garbage patch, there's rainfall of trash that's going down to the bottom of the ocean, and there's films on that. You can search for that on YouTube and see it. And it's not, I don't believe it because I don't see it because you can see it. It's um, it's real and it's a big deal, and I don't know what that solution is. I have no idea, but I know it has to be taken care of. 
So everybody in the um, marine areas of life, oceanographic services, uh, is in tune with it. They get it. You know, they know ocean temperatures are up. They know that the effect of ocean temperatures being up or the coral reef environment is getting destroyed. When the Great Barrier Reef, the largest living organism on the planet, is half gone, you get people's attention. But it's still not enough to make people change what they do. How long until it's gone? I don't know. If we keep on this path. I don't know. That would be a a guess. What would happen if it Um, all went away? Well, then you've got the ocean life that depends on the reef disappearing and going to other areas. And think about the fishing industries. Think about the... And we're talking about billion-dollar economies that are dependent on the oceans. The medicinal industry. um, A number of medicines come from reef materials. Um, you know, that's interesting to think. Okay, we're going to lose this, that, and the other medicine because we no longer have a place to retrieve and cultivate those kind of medicines. Trying to build a, a coral reef that is artificial, I don't know how you do that. Mm-hmm. So the best thing that I've seen that we're participating in is the replanting of coral reef material. Yeah, And there's two primary... Coral reefs are frequently talked about as plants. It's easy to identify with them that way, but all coral reef material is an animal. Um, So if you hear me talking about it like a plant, it's really an animal, and that's the footnote for the day. Uh, But it's it's a big deal. So there's two primary types of coral, elkhorn coral and staghorn coral, that are being successfully regrown, Mm -hmm. um, and that's been an issue. Coral grows at like a 64th of an inch a year. I mean, it's like, give me a break. This And so think about that. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. And what's being destroyed and being destroyed in a matter of a year, two years, six months in some cases in Indonesia. Um, it's it's really an amazing situation and requires, requires some drastic attention immediately. So we regrow the corals at, um, in the Florida Keys off of Marathon Key. Okay. And then um, transplanted, started in uh, the Pacific side of Costa Rica, a little place called Golfo Dose, not so little, but it's a golf there. Um, government regulations um, are problematic in many cases in terms of getting the regulation approved to go ahead and replant, but you can do it. It's just a matter of persistence, uh, which is... Which is a quality that I don't have that well. I get very impatient very quickly. Yeah. So you let other people get about that, and and it's working. Um, the first transplantation took place with the corals that were grown in the Keys, moved and delivered to Costa Rica on the Pacific side, um, replanted almost two years ago now, and they're doing extremely well. And they're growing faster than the 64th of an inch a year. Mm-hmm. Um and regrowing corals is, is just fascinating. And how it was discovered that you can propagate coral. And, um, yeah, that's a longer story than mm-hmm. we probably have time for. Yeah, so my question is, like, how do you get people to care about it? Like, most people probably don't even know this is going on. Yeah. Like, most people that listen to this are probably going to be like, yeah. I had no idea. Right, right. So, and, like, we live in, we're in the Chicago area, nowhere near the ocean. So, like, exactly. why do we care? Yeah, precisely. That's the thing. And that's the operative question. What's how- it going to take to get people to care, I guess, about, like, the climate change? And will it be, like seeing cities start to go underwater? Like, is that what it's going to take? Yeah, I think it might take something, some drastic event. 
That's how it takes. I feel like throughout history, that's what everything takes. Yeah. You don't Before care people, until something big happens. Right. And you think, well, it's not affecting me, and it's not affecting me now. Therefore, I'm going to go on with my life because I just don't have time. I don't have the inclination. I don't have the resources to address this. The really good news here is that your generation, generation in front of you, is interested. Yeah, they, that's for There's sure. a very peaked interest in this. Their ears are up, and they're paying attention. And I talk to younger folks all the time, and they'll tell me stories about their most recent vacation. And it's a vacation of substance. It's not a vacation of fun. It's a service-oriented vacation. Um, if it's a Habitat for Humanity week mm-hmm. of building a home for somebody, if it's delivering food to needy people in Central America or South America or Africa, for that matter, um, if it's teaching somebody how to dig a well and process water in Africa, I'm thinking about now. Um, there's a, I don't know if you can quite call it a movement, but it's noticeable. And I think that same texture of notice is something that with the right application of knowledge and information um, generates excitement. And if you have excitement, then the fuse is lit. And then we're off to the races, and we go. So Mission Ocean Reef is not just restoring reef environment. It's, it's an entire business in the yachting community. You know, everybody who listens to this knows you can rent a yacht. You can do it on a crewed basis, on um, an uncrewed basis. Um, and you can enjoy the heck out of going to the Caribbean and spending a week, 10 days, two weeks down there. Um, and we just want to add that one element do all those things. Enjoy the heck out of it. I mean, dive into that. Let's go windsurfing and let's go kiteboarding and let's look at the sites and go to the wonderful bars and restaurants and see these uninhabited islands. But let's also spend some time at the reefs where we're at and replant them. You get in the water, you see the reefs. It's, it's, this is not scientific, delicate, technical work. This is taking... A small structure, this animal, a coral, staghorn coral, putting a form of waterproof putty on the end of it and sticking it on a rock. And then we monitor it and categorize it and inventory it in sections. And then you take photographs of it and you tend it over the years. So it's not complicated. So it's doable, in other words. Hmm. Huh. So, yeah. So here we the, go. So what's the plan? Who, who, you have like a crew? Yeah, there's you got a group. Well, I mentioned this movie, Chasing Coral. Yep. And the fellow who um, produced and directed that is a friend of mine out in court in Fort Collins. Okay. And we've been talking about this Mission Ocean Reef for some time. And I said, Well, what about the his name's Jeff Orlowski? I said, Jeff, what where do where do the people come from? I mean, how do you who do you advertise to? He said, Don't even think about that. And he's right. The response to the movie Chasing Coral has been overflow, off the charts, off the Richter scale kind of response. People are getting it because when you watch the movie, you'll understand the movement of it. Um, and it doesn't stop with the movie. They've got all sorts of ways for people to get involved. Um, sitting at your desk at home in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, in Portland, Oregon, in San Diego, California, in Timbuktu, you can get involved. And people are getting involved around the world. And they're making a difference. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's actually happening. And to see it happen is exciting. 
And that's where the fundamental uh, substance of something like this works. And I think it's eminently doable. And that's not wishful thinking. That's let's look at the facts of this. I don't think this stock is going to go higher because I want it to go higher and I think it's a cool idea. It's going to work because the business strategy is right, that the marketing strategy is right, that all the elements, all the variables that can shift all the time, they're in sync here. You know, we've got the perfect combination of moon, sun, and earth, and it all looks good. And it's coming together on this. I'm excited about it. That's, That's really why I'm doing cool. it, because it's cool. That's really cool. It is really cool. Thank so you. So you, you got a big boat, big sailboat? Getting a big sailboat. How big? Yeah, 85 feet. Is that huge? That's a that's a big boat. I mean, when we think about boats, that might not mean anything to anybody. But yeah. think about aircraft. Mm-hmm. I'm a pilot. You're a pilot. I am. Yeah. What don't you do? I don't do CrossFit <laughs> as good as you. <laughs> okay, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't do a lot of things for crying out loud. No, I got my pilot's license back in college, and I've flown ever since then. But think about if you're used to flying commercially. Okay. You think of flying. In that fashion alone, you think of that kind of equipment available to fly on. If you're a successful business guy, you might have your own Learjet or Cessna Citation, and you're very comfortable because it's very convenient and it works. So I learned to fly, and you learn to fly in little bitty airplanes and graduate to bigger airplanes. And What's the biggest you've ever flown? A King Air B200, which, you know, maybe 12 people. Oh. It's a twin-engine jet aircraft, and it has propellers, but it's turbine engine, so it's really jet-powered. Yeah. Where do you fly to? Uh, where do you want to go? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and not as much recently, but I um, used to take the family. We'd go down to Florida from here and fly out of sweet. Milwaukee. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. So yeah it just, is, it's fun. You go wherever you want to go. And you're flying a plane. Yes. Just you. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is cool. It's kind of scary. Yeah, well, it's scary if something happens to me. (laughs) But it's not, flying isn't that, it's really not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like learning something in a math book. It's like learning something in a history book. You you learn and you practice, you learn and you practice, and you practice and you practice. And that's what you do. It's like scuba diving. You practice and you dive with people and you learn a little bit every time. And if you're not learning, you're, you're missing the boat. Get it? Boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good yeah, one. I know. <laughs> so you are leaving at the end of the year. Mm, that's the plan. We've got a private offering that'll be um, coming out in about four weeks um, to raise the substantive capital for okay. Mission Ocean Reef. Um, after the compilations are done with the accountants, then the attorneys downtown will put it, that into the offering memorandum. Then we raise the money, and money's there by the boat. Color me gone, exit just stage. Boat, just have one boat. Initially. Then you'll have a fleet. Well, it's not years. a fleet for me. It's yeah. now engaging the sailing community who is already aware of the problems with the coral reef environment. And the real money-making side of the business is then nothing more than a reservation system of people who want to go somewhere in the world to be a part of this. And you already have all these boats to do it. So we're just a clearinghouse, just a mechanism of having those people come to us, say, we want to go to wherever. Mm-hmm. The Caribbean for this country would be a common place. Say, well, here's what's the budget? What are you looking at? You know, the host of questions that you would go through. And you set them up with that crew. When, you, when you're sailing, when, <laughs> you have to understand this. 
if you're out there with it's you and your wife, you and your girlfriend, whatever yeah. it happens to be, it's really fun for a while. But there's only so much rum you can drink. There's only so many books you can read. Yeah. And then you think, well, you know what I'll do? I'll write articles for the sailing community. Is that what you do? No, because that goes so far, and that and it doesn't pay anything. Yeah. And what's the point for crying out loud? There's more impactful ways to be involved with it. So people are looking for something to do. And in the conversations, very general conversations that I have with these YouTube guys who are in the sailing community is bring it on, bring it on right now, we're in. Thank you very much. That's the only invitation I need. I'm off to the races. Are you going to be on Shark Tank? No. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not. I was the whole time you're just talking, I was picturing you on the show. No. Telling, no. About the, telling Mark Cuban about your idea. I'm not sure that Cuban would understand <laughs> what I'm doing. I, that's no disrespect to Mark, but they've got other situations. That's the classic entrepreneurial upstart thing. Mm. Yeah. This is really cool what you're doing. You're nice. You're nice to say so. It's exciting. It really flips my switches. It's where my heart's at. And um, I wake up thinking about it, go to bed thinking about it, think about it during the day, and and am doing something. Even working with the attorneys yeah. for crying out loud, which is not fun. Um, yeah, we're getting stuff done. Well, yeah, that's we're, when you know. And we're getting there. So you know it's important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, be encouraged. You, like you're doing now, keep following yeah. your passion. It's Just, cool stuff. <laughs> we talk about that. Yeah, we, we talk, talk about all the time. Yeah, for sure. So you want to drive you in that direction. You're going and you're not coming back. Well, Never. you come back. Yeah, of course oh. you come back. I mean, this is home. You grew up now, in now I'm picturing you as like Tom Hanks and Castaway. No, don't picture island. me like that with a coconut as a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to think that there's not going to be an abandonment of me on a beach on a well, deserted yeah, island I don't somewhere. hope that happens either, but you never know. You never know. But if it happens, when I get back, I'll tell you about it. Yeah. But you'll come back and visit? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be sad to see you go. Oh, I'll be yeah. sad to leave you, man. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. But uh, we'll see each other. That's yeah. not, you know, in this day and age, well, it doesn't matter where you are. It's, it's a piece of cake getting somewhere. Yeah, it's true. From you can air, just fly, too. Airfares are nothing. Yeah. Shoot, road trip to Florida is easy for that matter. Yeah. You know? Wait, so do you have a plane? So No, I do not have a plane. I did have a plane, you but did? that's a long time ago, yeah. Did Out it of say, DuPage Airport. Did it say, like, guy? Like, you know how Trump says Trump? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't say that. It was pretty dirty sometimes. So Yeah? Yeah. That's cool, though. Yeah, Where do you was, keep it? It was driveway? In, what, the plane? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it never worked in the driveway no. for some reason. Yeah. So, all right, now i got to ask you about your dog sledding experience. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's a shift of gears going from the marine so is that like, environment. Is that like, um, like you're like mush, like Balto? Yeah, you that's know, like just like dog? Balto, okay, as okay. a matter of fact. Okay. Yeah, precisely like Balto. So that was you out there? like. Yeah, I drove dog sleds and ran a restaurant dog sledding operation, the largest dog sledding operation in North America. That, of course, includes Alaska. 350 dogs, um, one of the dogs that was on one of my teams lives with me today. Really? That's a dog you see at the box sometimes. That's Yale. She's uh, she's a winner. Maybe you've never met Yale. I don't think I've Yale's with Yale. me in the car all the time. So. Oh, you yeah, leave she, her in the car? Oh, she's the best. Well, on a cool day, I don't take her when it's... <laughs> She's panting and saying, get me out of here, Dad, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not like that at all. But that was really interesting. It was a friend of mine who owned a restaurant operation in Snowmass Village, Colorado. And um, I went there yeah. as a visitor. And 
it was great and went on a dog sled ride and it was like oh this is the coolest thing i've ever done and he reveals to me that this is back when we went through the recession in what year is that now oh eight yeah oh eight oh nine okay and he had just come off of that and was really you know eating dirty canal water um you know these are little tiny businesses in these mountain towns these are businesses that generally operate just for the winter season three four months of the year and that's when they make it all and it's a little business anyway you know do a million two a million three in revenue and that's all she wrote and you're feeding 350 dogs and you're vetting 350 dogs that's a lot isn't it and it's a big deal um and he was having some trouble after this bad year uh with the banks and he just during a very casual discussion of my visit to the restaurant uh, and learning of my investment banking background, he asked if I could help him negotiate two loan agreements he had with Wells Fargo um, out in Aspen. I said, I'd be happy to do that. Mm-hmm. It was an excuse for me. I was living in Las Cruces, um, New Mexico at the time. Um, get back up to Aspen. Dan, I'm on my way. Let's do this. Went there, renegotiated those contracts. He said, you know what you'd be really good at? You should run this operation. What? Okay, fine. And it's it's that simple. We're sitting outside on the patio. He says this, and I think for about three and a half seconds, said, yeah, I can do that. Let's see what we can do. And went home, spent the summer at home, and came back that winter and spent four years with him. And it was wonderful time. Wonderful people. In season, 50, 53 employees. Um, dog sensational. Guest sensational. And everything in Aspen Snowmass is like, at an expense level that is obscene. Um, you know, you'd spend a family of four, dinner or lunch and a dog sled ride and maybe a bottle of wine or something, is spending 1500 bucks, maybe more. Wow. Yeah, and then, you know, the crowd comes in and that's, you know, 10 people and they're from Russia um, and people all over the world. They're from Switzerland. They're from South America. They're from Africa, Australia. I mean, everywhere. And these are people who are there to have a great time. You know, they just whip out. They whip out credit cards that I've never seen before. As in, the weight, mm-hmm. literally. <laughs> is it really? I didn't even know you could get a card like that. But this was no limits, no nothing. And they go to town, and it was great. And uh, turned around. Thankfully, for you know, good economic conditions and a good environment, and fell in love with it too. So I'm running the operation and I'm driving dog sleds, loving the dogs, and it's just hard work. I mean, nonstop kind of stuff, but it was cool. It was really good. How long you do that for? Four years. Yeah. Four years. Yeah. And why did you stop? And just ready to move on? Well, I was I was in an agreement to buy the restaurant, okay, um, an operation from him, and the owner had a um, a heart attack. And died like three or four months later. Um, so it all fell to the wayside. His daughter took it over and then sold it to um, a couple that came out of Alaska. So they're the current owners, and they're wonderful folks. Yeah. The dogs are in great shape, um, doing a really good job. Have you seen my dog, no. Cooper? No. Oh, I was going to ask if you think he could be a sled dog. What kind of dog is he? Australian Labradoodle. <laughs> Micro-sized. <laughs> Like 15 pounds. Yeah. For a small sled, maybe. Yeah. Not. <laughs> Probably not. 
Alright, Kyle, this was fun. It is fun being with you. I'm glad we got to do this. I am too. Thanks for the invitation I, to be I here. I feel like we're just starting to scratch the surface on you, though. Yeah, well, take us a lot more. I think we need to change this around and change this around. Yeah, have somebody interview you because you've got some exciting stuff going on in your yeah. life. Yeah, people tell me that sometimes. You no, know, it's true. That's yeah. why they tell you that. Yeah, and you're ignoring it. So you're going to have to grab you by the throat it. and slap you around a little bit and get you on the program. Maybe. It might yeah. be what it takes. Yeah. You're going to be a Mission Ocean Reef person before you know it. Mission. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And Who there's knows? something to sleep on tonight. There we go. Yeah. All right. Your thanks, dad's going to kill me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed Episode 64 of this show. We'll see you next time on the Up Before You podcast. Have a great day.